Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. It takes guts to face your fears. That's what Raina Telgemeier is tackling in her new graphic novel memoir, Guts. Raina is the best-selling, award-winning creator of Smile, Sisters, Drama, Ghosts, and Share Your Smile. In Guts, she's sharing the story of her own experiences with anxiety. It all starts when Raina wakes up one night with an upset stomach. She thinks it's probably just a bug, but her tummy trouble doesn't go away. And it seems to coincide with a lot of other worries she has about school, food, and friendships. Raina is definitely not alone. According to the Child Mind Institute, nearly one in three children will experience an anxiety disorder before the age of 18. Today, we'll hear from Raina about why it was important to her to share this story with young readers. I'll also talk with Dr. Ellie Leibowitz from the Yale Child Study Center about the pivotal role books can play in conversations about mental health. First, here's Raina. Hi, Raina. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. So... We all have been eagerly awaiting the publication of Guts, your latest graphic novel. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a memoir, just like Smile and Sisters. And this one takes place before Smile, during my fourth and fifth grade years, when I just started having panic attacks and becoming really anxious. I think it was always there. I was just kind of a nervous and shy kid for the first few years of my life. And then something about fourth grade, I think it was just combination of factors. I had a new baby in the house and we had a really small apartment and I wasn't getting along with all of my family members. And I had some conflict with some of the kids in my class and it just all hit me. And the place that it hit me was my stomach. So all of my anxiety manifested in my stomach and uh, nobody really understood why. There was nothing really wrong with me. Um, I got checked out by the doctor. I got checked out by a therapist and everybody just said, we think you're just anxious. So 30 years later, I decided to write a book about it. (laughs) Why 30 years later? It never seemed like a story. It just felt like it was a part of who I was. And sometimes when something is so deep inside of you, you don't have a way to contextualize it and say, this is where the story begins and this is where the story might possibly end. How do you end that story? I don't know, but I've been through a lot of adult therapy in the last five years and I've done some new types of training and some new techniques that have been super helpful. And I think being able to see it from the outside just a little bit was the piece that I needed to be able to tell a story about how it began. Um, So in some ways, Guts doesn't really have an ending. It ends kind of at the end of fifth grade, but my personal story continues beyond the book. Um, But writing about it, it's a great way for me to understand it myself a little bit better. And uh, it was really freeing to write this story. 
The conversation around mental health has come a long way, but we still have a way to go. You certainly are helping with this story. I wondered what you hope young readers will take away and and learn from this from your experiences. Um, I think the most important thing I've learned from writing about my own experiences and of writing memoir in general is just that we're all so similar. We all have so much in common and there are a lot of things that aren't talked about. There are a lot of things that are sort of off limits or they're taboo or they're just, you know, they're embarrassing. So why would you want to discuss how you feel on the inside? But the more I do that, the more I stand on stage and talk with kids and the more I respond to their letters and and get to know them, it just seems like they all have stories inside of them that they want to tell. And they all have, you know, these hopes and these fears. And a lot of them are anxious and they don't quite know what to do with it. But I've just found that writing down my feelings, my thoughts, all of that. It's helped me so much. And so however I can like bring that to them and show them that they're not so different and so alone, it helps us both or it helps us all, I guess I should say. It was pretty revolutionary for your parents to send you to therapy 30 years ago. Very cool that they did that. It was cool. I was. Uh, well, I don't know if it was cool. <laughs> well, it must have been incredibly helpful. It was helpful. Yeah. I think just even the fact that I was setting aside an hour every week to be in a quiet room with one other person who said, this is a safe space. And if you need to say something here, it's not going to leave this room. I didn't really have that. I had a family with several siblings. And like I said before, not very much space. And I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of people that were always there. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to just have quiet time and thought time and, you know, space for that. So Yeah, it was great. Um, And my sister actually ended up seeing the same therapist a few years later. So she stuck around. And when I went to write this book, I had a lot of really specific visual memories. And she, you know, when when you go to child therapy, there's a lot of like toys to play with. And there's a sandbox and you tend to draw pictures and you you talk through activities that make you a little bit more comfortable. And so I had all those visual memories really strongly in my mind. I was struck in the book how your mom compares therapy to telling your story yeah. and the parallels between that and then you telling your story here. Yeah, that that ties into Share Your Smile, too, because that's all about looking at your own life experiences and all of the people that you know and how you're feeling at any, any given time in your life to make a story about it. Right. Talking is story. And it's healing. It's healing. Exactly. It's it's all therapy. That brings me to, though, the color palette here, Mm -hmm. which works so beautifully with the story. How did you make those choices about color? Well, I don't color my own work. Mm -hmm. I work with a colorist. His name is Brayden Lamb, and he is amazing. He also colored Sisters and Ghosts and the Babysitter's Club graphic novels. And when he colored Ghosts, I just thought his color palette was amazing. It's these cool greens and lovely deep blues, and uh, he really evoked like summertime on the West Coast, which can be very chilly and drab. But he also evoked happiness and and colorful energy through his work. So when he when he was working on Guts, I said, the palette of everyday life is the 1980s. (laughs) So think like hot pink and lime green and just bold, you know, fluorescent yellow. And then the anxiety attacks should look different somehow. And I kept coming back to green as the color. I think green is the color that you associate with like sickness right. and your your face turns green when you're feeling sick. And of course, now we have 
a, a palette of emojis to communicate with. <laughs> we did not have those when I was a kid. We didn't even have those when I started making graphic novels. So the fact that my books have what kids think of as emojis on the covers is hilarious to me. But, you know, there's like a sick emoji and it's a green face. So at first we thought the cover of this book might be green. And then we were all surprised that green did not work very well for the cover, but purple did really well. So purple and green are complementary colors to one another, though. So I think it's a nice package. One of the things that was so powerful to me was the way you illustrated how anxiety feels. Could you talk about that? What was it like to actually draw that? So visually depicting anxiety in the story was a challenge, but also something that I feel like has always been there and it was just a matter of reaching in and grabbing it. And so I I had one person read my earliest draft and they said, I really, really like this, but I want to see more of what it looks like to be inside of a panic attack. Can you show me? And I think there was a later scene where I'm sort of in the middle of like a spider web and spider webs are, you know, very delicate and thin. So it's like being on this really shaky surface and then falling from it. So that existed, but the earlier sequences did not. I think I just said in my script, I had a panic attack. And Cassandra actually said, we don't want to tell too much. We want the reader to be questioning what's going on, because otherwise you're giving it all away. And, and then you don't need to read any further, which was a very good note. <laughs> So um, I think a lot of my vocabulary comes from other graphic novels and from film. And if you've seen the movie Toy Story 2, at the very beginning, there's a scene where Woody and Andy are playing and they're having like a lovely time. And then Andy throws Woody into the trash and Woody falls into this like bottomless pit. And you just see like the, the playing cards above his head sort of falling and the light changes in that scene. Like that's, I've watched that scene, you know, hundreds of times. And so I was actually trying to evoke that scene when I drew the first panic attack sequence where Raina's sort of falling through the tiles on the bathroom floor and it feels like there's nothing to hang on to. And then just the feeling of falling, 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 falling. So having a visual representation of anxiety, will that allow kids to sort of see a feeling as opposed to just hearing about it or hearing somebody describe it. I think even just hearing another person describe what it's like to have a panic attack, it doesn't feel the same as it does in your own head, in your own body. So so possibly, and this this might be one of the the reasons why comics are so powerful too, not just not just the other things about it, but the fact that you can see it and that sometimes you see things without words and sometimes you are filling in feelings inside of your head and emotions and thoughts and it just triggers something in our brains I don't know that much about the brain so I, I can't tell you like what exact part of the brain it is but it's something about our fear something about our empathy something about our recognizing ourselves and others and I don't know the power of art the power of story it's it's a great way to communicate and I think if it means that even one kid learns to communicate the way they're feeling in a similar way than I've done my job. Getting back to therapy, in the book, young Raina is reluctant to tell her friends about the fact that she's in therapy. Mm -hmm. How did that play out in your life or how did you get the strength to share that story when you were young? 
Believe it or not, it actually happened a lot like it does in the story where the girls are at a slumber party and we're playing a game called Skeletons in the Closet where everybody goes around the room and talks about something difficult or secret and the things you learn about your friends it's pretty amazing you you think oh my friends are all so perfect and why am I the only one who has these problems and they all have such perfect families and perfect lives and then you realize that's not true at all it's just the stuff that we keep in the closet and that nobody wants to talk about so if you spend time with my character you know what's going on inside my character's head but there's a lot of other characters in the story that you don't get a full picture of but those little hints it's just like real people in your life it's like I have a little hint that maybe my friend's going through something that's a lot to think about I should I should maybe spend some time thinking about what other people are going through and so I don't know it it builds empathy and I'm I'm grateful that my my group of friends was willing to sort of open those doors and and let each other in because it made us better friends that's beautiful Raina I think young readers will really be able to relate to the characters and guts, whether they're struggling with anxiety themselves or just nervous about opening up to their friends about something. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We know from the Scholastic Kids and Family Reading Report that well over half of kids and parents turn to books to help them understand the world and get through difficult times. To better understand why that can be so powerful, especially when starting conversations around mental health, we turn to the Yale Child Study Center. Scholastic and the Yale Child Study Center have launched a joint research endeavor focusing on the intersections of literacy and health. The findings that come out of the collaborative will contribute to the creation of resources, programs, professional development, and curriculum for supporting children and families. Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Ellie Leibowitz, who studies and treats childhood and adolescent anxiety and is director of the Program for Anxiety Disorders at the Yale Child Study Center. Hi, Ellie. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to speak with you about such an important topic. Uh, My first question is, if you could just tell our listeners a bit about your work with the Yale Child Study Center. I'm Ellie Leibowitz, and I'm a psychologist by training. I've been at the Yale Child Study Center for about 10 years. The Yale Child Study Center is really all about helping children, families, and parents, and everything to do with children's well-being, their development, their psychological and mental health. And my own work focuses on anxiety and related problems. So that's issues to do with anxiety, worry, stress, and, and fears. And we study treatments for child anxiety, so how to help children get better and overcome these problems, and also on some of the neurobiology of anxiety, um, learning more about the role of different brain systems and other biological systems in, in our body, all of that in an effort to better understand these problems and be better able to help children 
and their families. We're focusing on anxiety today, which is the topic of Raina Telgemeier's latest book and also your area of expertise. What is something you wish people realized about anxiety, especially in children? I think it's important to be aware of just how common anxiety problems actually are for for children. These really are the most common and prevalent mental health problems throughout life and definitely in in childhood. And it's easy to underestimate that because, you know, there are some problems that really call attention to themselves very, very clearly. For example, if a child has very severe hyperactivity, it's very hard for that to fly under the radar. Someone's going to notice because it's going to be a little bit of an interference or a little bit of a disruption to what's going on around them. Whereas anxiety can sometimes fly under the radar much more quietly for a much longer time. But actually, these are incredibly common problems. Probably as many as one in three children is going to have a really significant and impairing anxiety problem some point before they reach adulthood. And it's just important to be aware of that and to notice the problems, not wait for them to get too severe. And the other thing that I think it's important to know is that although these problems are very common and although anxiety is not the kind of problem that tends to just go away on its own, it is a problem that is very treatable. It is something that can be overcome. And the world is really full of kids who used to have an anxiety disorder and now they don't because it's a very treatable condition. And so you know, when you put those things together, if it's not all that likely to go away on its own, but it is likely to respond to help when help is given, what you get is a pretty strong argument for not waiting and getting children the kind of help that they need. What signs should parents and teachers be looking for to see if their children are suffering emotionally? I think a good way to think about that is to think about the 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 things that most children are able to do in their day-to-day lives and whether your child is having difficulty in any of those areas. And so that could include um, social functioning, for example, getting along with friends, making and maintaining friendships, enjoying spending time with other people. It can include school life, everything from being able to comfortably go to school or to go at all and to function there and to be able to concentrate on what you're learning and participate in school. And when it comes to anxiety in particular, things to think about are uh, things that maybe my child has difficulty doing or avoids doing, situations that they're worried about. Are they asking a lot of worry questions, for example, or do they have difficulty sleeping or do they have difficulty being away from parents and uh, being on their own or independent? And so looking at those different behaviors and how children are able to function is a good way for parents to get a sense of whether things are going well or they should be a little bit more concerned. And if they are concerned, how can they start the conversation with their children and how might books help bridge the gap between explaining feelings? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great question. And in a sense, the key to being able to have those conversations is actually probably not in, in, it's probably in not 
waiting for the problem to occur to start having conversations about our inner lives and our well-being, but to have that be part of a family's regular communication and conversation, even little things like talking about not just what did I do today, but how did I feel today? Parents sharing their own emotional experiences, including the difficult ones. As adults, we also have times when we feel less happy or we feel more nervous or we feel more angry. And if we're able to talk about those things regularly, then it will also be easier to talk about a child's difficulties when there is a source of concern and the child will be more used to talking about those things. And then when we are a little bit more concerned, then I think taking an interest in a curious way, but not in a judgmental way or in an alarmed way can help to have the conversation in a more relaxed atmosphere and in an easier environment. So just asking simple questions like, how did you feel or um, what was hard for you in that situation and making it clear that it's not about an anger or about a frustration or a judgment, but more of a curiosity and a concern. And I think that books are actually a wonderful and tremendous key to opening up some of those conversations. And that can include both books that are more explicitly about challenges in our feelings or our behavior, but it can also be just any book because any good book is going to be chock full of experiences and emotions because that's what makes a book interesting is when we do learn more about the characters. And so even if we're reading a book that's not explicitly about anxiety or depression or anger, it's likely that a character is going to have some feelings or is going to face a situation that might cause them to have some feelings. And we can use that as a way of opening up that conversation. What do you think this person was feeling in that situation? Or what do you think you might have felt in that moment? I think books often also offer a lot of tools that are written into the story just as part of the narrative, but can actually be useful tools that we can also take for our lives and that we can use and practice. Do you have any examples? Well, you know, one, uh, <laughs> I'll admit that one of, one of my favorite um, book series is the Harry Potter series. And part of what makes Harry Potter so great as a book is that it, it really has a lot of metaphors for different emotional challenges and also a lot of tools for coping with them. And taking one for, um, from the area of anxiety in particular, um, in, the, in the third Harry Potter book, The Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry and his friends, they're being taught how to deal with a particular kind of monster that's called a boggart. And a boggart is just a marvelous metaphor for anxiety because it is this monster that lives in the dark 
corners of your house, in the old cupboard or in the attic. And what makes it a great metaphor for anxiety is that it's not actually dangerous. It doesn't really do anything to you, but it always appears to every person in the form of the thing that they fear the most. And so if you are terrified of snakes, when you see a boggart, it's going to look like a giant scary snake to you. That snake is not actually going to do anything, but it's going to scare you very, very much. And if you're afraid of something else, it will look like that. And so it really is a great metaphor for a lot of the anxiety that children cope with, all these things that we fear and that torment our minds, even when they're not actually posing real dangers. And in the wizarding class, when they're learning how do you fight a boggart, what they're taught is that when you see a boggart, the way to make it go away is to imagine it in a funny way. So you have to say a spell, but you also have to imagine this boggart in a funny way. And so, for example, um, Harry's friend Ron, who is terrified of spiders, sees the boggart and it looks to him like this tremendous, scary, evil looking spider. And of course, he's terrified. But once he's able to change that image in his mind to something funny, and he does that by imagining the spider with like roller skates on all its eight feet, and now it's slipping and sliding and not able to keep itself upright, and suddenly it looks funny. And as soon as he gets a smile on his face and he starts to chuckle, the bogger runs away. That's a great tool for children coping with anxiety, being able to think of something in a funny way rather than in a scary way can have a very real impact on how you feel. What's great about it is that kids read these books and they're not reading a book on mental health, right? They're not reading a book about anxiety, but they're learning a tool that can really serve them in real life. And so if you read that and maybe you're reading it together with your child or you're just talking about it, you can have a whole conversation about wouldn't it be great if we could use that when we feel scared of something. So that's just one of the ways that I think books can be so rich, both in opening up the conversation and also in providing us with tools and language for talking about these things and skills for overcoming them. I think part of the issue has been conversations around mental health have stigmatized mental health. And I'm wondering if you see trends toward normalizing the conversations or helping children feel more comfortable expressing how they feel. I think you're so right. We have, um, and really unfortunately, uh, a long tradition or, or a rich history of not wanting to talk about a lot of these problems or as seeing um, emotional challenges in this negative way as though they were relegated only to the small number of people who have um, you know, psychological problems and, and are weird or strange or, or um, unfortunate in some way. And what's so, uh, what's, what's so disappointing about that is that not only is it unfair and unhelpful, but it's also just completely untrue because nobody goes through life without 
facing emotional challenges all the time. We, whether or not you have a psychological disorder, you're still going to be coping with different challenges throughout your life. And being able to talk about it in a less stigmatized way, I think is, um, is so important. But I do agree that there is, at least in, in a gradual way and, and far from enough, but there is a trend toward a little bit more openness in talking about these things. I can tell you that uh, one of the most interesting shifts or changes that I've observed through my own work in recent years is the number of families that I see where a child has a difficulty and where the, um, and where the child is actually the person who has instigated or initiated the, the um, contact with, with, with us, with the child study center, often done through parents, but still coming from the child. So a parent who will call and say, my child says they have um, social anxiety and I think maybe we need help. And that's something that even as recently as you know, five or 10 years ago was exceedingly rare, at least in my experience. It was almost always the case that it would be the parent who was concerned and who reached out. And in recent years, I've seen um, slow but gradual increase in the number of times when it's actually coming from the child. And I think that is partly a reflection of the fact that children today just have a lot more access to information because it is possible to, uh, if you are feeling upset about something or you're having a difficulty, it's possible to, you know, Google that problem. And right, why do I feel like this all the time? And if you're fortunate to find some good information that can actually lead you to getting some some help. But it's also a reflection of the fact that there is a little bit more openness among um, young people, and to a certain extent, also among adults to talk about the problems and to recognize them and to try to get help. There sometimes could be concerns about going to therapy and whether it's going to be a scary or a positive experience. We see in the book Guts that the character Raina has a really terrific experience in therapy. It really helps her. She does have to overcome shame, and it's a secret that she keeps initially from her friends. But why is such a model helpful for kids and adults to see that kind of experience portrayed in a positive light? I think it's incredibly helpful. Just, you know, part of it is just knowing that there even is help, just knowing that it's possible to get help, that it's even a thing, which, you know, maybe we as adults might take for granted, but I don't think is really all that obvious to every child. And then having a model like that of somebody that I can identify with, that is a um, a role model for someone that I, I don't see in a negative way, but the opposite I see as a positive character going and getting that kind of help and feeling like it was useful for them can make me a lot more likely and motivated to get help as well. If you think about children's experiences of doctors, they're not really always entirely positive. And that's not because doctors are, are, are bad, but for the most part, 
well, we go either um, when we're sick, and that's not always pleasant, or we go for checkups, like our annual health visits, and those amount to someone who's, I mean, hopefully, of course, being kind and, and, and gentle, but is ultimately doing things that don't always make us feel all that comfortable, or maybe we're getting shots and needles, and so it's not always clear to to a child that going and seeing a doctor about a problem can actually be a wonderfully positive experience and that they can have a good amount of control over the situation, that they can um, choose the kinds of things that they'll be doing, at least to a significant degree. And reading about that in, in just a kind of normal way, I think, is very encouraging. That's really one of the of the many wonderful things about guts is that there is that model. I think it's and and it's really um, I think it's really powerful that the author chose to use her own name for for the character and is clearly describing her own experiences because here's a person that I maybe I've read other books by this by this author and even if I haven't well here's a person who's clearly successful and is creative and is artistic and is able to have a very successful career and this person is telling me look here I had a, a difficulty maybe I still have difficulty in 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 various situations but I was able to cope with it, and I was able to go and get help from somebody who knew how to help me. Well said, Ellie. As you say, I think there are a lot of young readers out there who will be able to see themselves in the storyline of guts, whether they're experiencing anxiety themselves, or even if they're just struggling with friendships or school. Here's hoping that even more kids and parents will start conversations around mental health together. Thanks so much to Raina and Ellie for joining me, and thank you for listening. To learn more about Guts and Scholastic's work with the Yale Child Study Center, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrazula, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.